We are starting a new series uh, in the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to be going passage by passage in the book of 1 Peter for the next couple of months here. This is a letter uh, written to several communities in what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, written by the Apostle Peter. And uh, through this letter to these communities who, in their context, were enduring suffering and working out what it meant to follow Jesus as a, a minority community in these, in these places, in these cities in which God had put them, uh, God has something profound to say to us. Not necessarily because their context is exactly like our context, in fact, very different. But because as Peter is encouraging them to live into who God has called them to be as followers of Jesus, the Spirit of God has something to say to us. And so we're going to start off uh, just with two verses. We're going to uh, cover Peter's introductory remarks. They're loaded with these rich uh, theological concepts of who we are as followers of Jesus. Um, and we're going to uh, learn from what the Apostle Peter has to say uh, to his audience that is true of us as well. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We're going to dive right into it. So if you've got your own device or uh, Bible you want to pull up, read along with me, you can also listen. But if you have access to seeing it, you will benefit from being able to see it in front of you. And so I encourage you to do that. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. I'll read, and then I'll ask the Spirit of God to speak to us here this morning uh, as, as we get into it. So, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is what God's Word says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's God's word for us this morning, written by the Apostle Peter, 2,000 years ago, own language, style, cultural context, but inspired by the Spirit of God. And every time we open up God's word, he has something to say to us. So let's pray right now and ask that he would speak. Would you guys pray with me? Uh, Lord, we're so grateful for your grace and grateful that we can know you. Uh, but just that simple and profound truth that the God of the universe is knowable and wants us, invites us into relationship with him. Um, we pray this morning that we would have open hearts to receive, open hearts to hear from you, open hearts to come to your word and to hear your voice in it as you speak to us by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we pray, God, that you would do that. Um, you, you love every single one of us. You know what we're bringing into this morning, our heartaches, our pains, our frustrations, our stress, our joys, our celebrations, uh, our apathy, whatever the case is. You know each one of us better than we even know ourselves. And you invite us to bring ourselves to you. And so we pray that we would and that, that we would hear from you and that we become the kind of women, men and women that... Um, are who we were always made to be as we come and, and, and sit in your presence and hear from your truth. So we pray for that, um, and we just thank you that your grace makes all that safe and possible. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd speak and come. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, don't just give up zebra cakes. Become the kind of person who doesn't eat zebra cakes. That's the tongue-in-cheek advice of a journalist named Maggie Korth. She wrote an article a couple of New Year's ago called, Happy New Year, Your Resolutions Won't Bring You Joy. Very tongue-in-cheek kind, of, uh, kind of title there. Here's what she does. She uh, kind of maps through some of the 
uh, psychology research around motivation, around happiness, looking at uh, why, when it comes to our resolutions for the New Year's or any goal that we set for ourselves, why do we stick to some goals and not others? Why, when we accomplish some goals, we have a real profound sense of satisfaction in, in accomplishing that goal. It adds to our happiness in our life, and why other times, not so much. And here's what she concludes as she looks at some of the research in the area. She, her, one of her big conclusions is this. We don't so much stick with goals because we think we should do them, so much as we stick with goals because we identify with them. So... Don't just give up zebra cakes. Be, turn yourself into the kind of person who doesn't eat zebra cakes. Now, this isn't about zebra cakes. If you like zebra cakes, get down with your bad self. Just, you know, dark room by yourself. I don't care what the situation is. Just eat the zebra cake. That's not about zebra cakes. The point is, and here's the big idea, it's a framework that is an observable aspect of how God has knit together the human mind, body, and spirit, and it's at the very heart of our passage in the first two verses of 1 Peter. The principle is this. Our identity directs our energy. Our identity, how we think of ourselves, the narrative that we attach to who we are, what we say about ourselves to ourselves, whether we do so explicitly or simply that's just some internalized thing that we have made about ourselves. Our sense of self directs our energy, how we actually live. So don't just eat zebra cakes. Turn yourself into the kind of person that doesn't eat zebra cakes. Or maybe more importantly, we can leave the zebra cakes behind. There's no more reference of zebra cakes for the rest of the morning, okay? <laughs> Unless you want to, and we can talk about zebra cakes all morning. The point is this. Something more profound. Don't just give yourself a to-do list of things to love your neighbor. Become the kind of person filled with love for your neighbor. All of this begs the question, if our identity directs our energy... How are followers of Jesus to think of ourselves? Who does God say that we are? Which is to ask, what is the truest thing about me? Who am I? What should I believe about myself? And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're, if you're joining us here this morning and you're just exploring Jesus, you got invited by a friend, whatever the case is, this is a look at the identity, a question of the identity, the sense of self that Jesus offers. What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to find yourself in him? And we're looking at these two incredibly rich verses that give color to those questions. What is the truest thing about me as a follower of Jesus? Because this is just the introductory remarks of this letter that goes on uh, to explain some really interesting themes and have some really interesting encouragement and direction for these communities that the Apostle Peter is writing to. But he doesn't just merely say, hey guys, it's Peter, I'm writing to so-and-so. Instead, what he does is he says, hey guys, it's Peter. That part's there. But then he, instead of just saying, here's who I'm writing to, moving on, he gives these really beautiful and important and logic and that with a logical flow explanation of who they are, declarations of who they are as the recipients of this letter, as followers of Jesus. And so what we, as we look at what Peter says about these communities as followers of Jesus, what we're seeing is what's true of us as followers of Jesus. 
Our identity directs our energy, and in these two jam-packed verses, we're going to see the what of, our, of the identity that Jesus gives, the basis of the identity that Jesus gives, and the purpose of the identity that Jesus gives. And Peter, Peter walks us through each one of those. By the way, this is a total aside. I really like doing messages like this where it's like two verses. This is just like pastor, like insider baseball stuff. But when you like teach a longer passage of scripture, unless it's a narrative, it's like a, a longer passage of like one of the New Testament letters or something like that, you leave so much on the table. And I'm, we're going to leave stuff on the table here. Literally, as I've been preparing this, I'm like, there's two verses. I, I, we could do eight weeks on these two verses. It's some really juicy stuff. But... Um, I just like getting to slowly walk through the passage of scripture, which is why it's kind of helpful if you have it out in front of you. No sweat if you don't. You're not going to be missing out, but you should. Okay, here we go. Our identity directs our energy, and we're going to see the what of the identity that Jesus gives, the basis of the identity that Jesus gives, and the purpose of the identity that Jesus gives. And so we'll dive right into it with the what. What is the identity that Jesus gives us? How are we to think of ourselves? And he begins his first words to this communities or these communities, I should say, that he's writing to. He says in 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he says to elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Peter begins with the what of who these folks are, who we are. And his what is found in these two words, two concepts that go together to form a very important framework for what our identity is. He says, to the elect exiles. Some translations will split these up. They might say, as you're reading along, yours might say, uh, to God's elect, comma, exiles. That's fine. The, the point is there's two two words here that are both functioning together to form a picture of what it means to follow Jesus, who we are as followers of Jesus. Walk through both and both put both together and you get a picture of what it, what it means to follow Jesus, who we are. The first is that he says that he's writing to God's elect, those who are chosen of God. Now, Depending on your church background, this word may have family of five traveling at Christmas time level of baggage for you, right? Like you're just sitting in your seat squirming like, oh no, don't talk about it. Breeze over it. Breeze over it, please. Or maybe your just eyes are glazing over. You're feeling like super like, oh gosh, this, this is boring me to tears. Maybe you're confused and you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. That's fine too. Every emotional experience is valid here. But in case you are uh, someone who's interested and or nervous and or curious or confused, we're going to get into some of, the, uh, some of the theological considerations for this in our next point. For now, what I want us to see is that when Peter's using this term, he's tapping into the primary way that the biblical authors use this idea of being God's chosen ones. And that's this. That when the, when the biblical writers use the word elect or chosen people or anything like that, what they're talking about is being chosen of God, particularly those who are called out by God for particular service with him. So he's saying, you, you people I'm writing to, us followers of Jesus, you are loved of God and you're chosen by God, called of God to a particular way of life with him and partnering with him in his mission in the world. 
God wants you. He loves you. He has something for you in your life. One of the fundamental truths about who you are is that you're loved by God. You're wanted by God. God has something specific for you in your life. One of the little um, interesting tidbits here about this passage that's kind of a rabbit trail but actually is related is the specific cities that are referenced here. We think about God having something specific for us in our life. There's a purpose for what he's doing in us. Uh, If you are are familiar or you're kind of paying close attention to the New Testament as, as it's unfolding, one of the things that's really interesting is these specific cities. In Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul not the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul tries to go to a couple of these cities to proclaim the good news of Jesus for the first time. And the text kind of mysteriously says the Spirit of God did not allow him to. But then later we see now Peter writing to followers of Jesus in these communities that the Apostle Paul could not go to, meaning God God said no to Paul for a yes to something else, and he had something for someone else to do in these particular cities. So there's a particular thing that God wanted to do in people's lives, working out this through. We see that at play here in this passage. But the point is, God loves you, he wants you, he is calling for you. Purpose in your life. You're God's elect chosen of God. The paradigm here is like Abraham in the story of the Old Testament and the story of the children of Israel. Uh, Abraham was living in Babylon, or Ur of the Chaldeans. God called him out of Babylon to leave his family, to go on a journey with him, to be his partner in mission with him, his partner for what God wanted to do in the world. That's the, that is the paradigm for what it means to be God's chosen ones, God's elect, called out by God from one way of life into another to be with him and to be partnered with him in what he wants to do in the world. And that is a fundamental truth of who you are. And secondly, it's, you're not just God's chosen ones, you're God's chosen ones in exile, he says. You're, you're elect exiles. And at its most basic, an exile is just someone who makes their home in a place other than their true home. Uh, So specifically here, there's a list of particular places that the apostle Peter gives, these various cities that are now in modern-day Turkey. And so he's saying, you are God's chosen ones, living in a home that's not your true home in these particular places, in these particular times and these particular places. And Peter is tapping into this theme that is actually a motif that gets kind of woven throughout scripture, but is, is, uh, really comes uh, to a, a real specific picture in a, a period of Israel's history where, uh, and in God's loving discipline of his people as they were kind of had walked away from him, he sends them in captivity out of the land of Israel as captives, as exiles into the land of Babylon. And this is the image that the the Apostle Peter is evoking for us here. And as the children of Israel were living outside of their true home in a different home in Babylon, followers of Jesus are living outside of our true home in the renewed creation that Jesus is going to usher in at the culmination of history, but making our home here and now, which is to say we are living distinctly as God's people, living like our true home, in a place that is not our true home. 
Now, this, uh, this kind of idea, this concept, and sometimes in some Christian circles is used uh, basically to imply we're just passing through, the world's going to burn, so we just got to circle the wagons, we got to batten down the hatches, and we just got to get through with as much holiness as we can muster up. Don't worry too much about the world or the state of the world, just kind of get through it, and, and don't worry because this isn't our true home, remember? Not our true home, we're just passing through, right? So get to the other place that's our true home, and then we're good to go. But if you actually look at what God instructed his people to do while they were in exile in the Old Testament, in this period of Israel's history, it couldn't be a more different picture than the batten down the hatches approach. It couldn't be more different than circle the wagons, we're just passing through, this isn't our true home. You can see this in Jeremiah 29 if you're interested. But what God says to his people is this. This is not your true home. You're in exile. One day I'm going to get you back to your true home. But while you're making your home in the place that's not your true home, make it your home. He says, buy houses, plant gardens, start businesses, send your, send your kids off in marriage. Make that place your true home, even though it's not your true home. And as you do, seek the good of the city to which I've sent you. In other words, live like the kingdom of God in a place that's not the kingdom of God in such a way that it becomes more like the kingdom of God by the very fact that you're present there. Seek the good of that place. He says, pray for it. Seek its welfare, for in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. So we're to make the South Bay our home. The South Bay, as it's currently constructed, and this side of Jesus's, Jesus's return and the culmination of history and renew, the renewal of creation, it's not our true home. It's beautiful and has some wonderful good things about it because God made the world originally good and there's good in God's common grace. There's good even in a broken world. And yet, it's not our true home, but we can make it our home and make it more like the kingdom of God as we live like the kingdom of God here. We're elect, we're chosen of God, loved by God, wanted by God, and we're exiles making our home in a place that's not our true home. And that is the what of the identity Jesus gives. We're elect exiles, we're loved by God, we're chosen by God to live like the kingdom of God, seeking the good of our time and our place that is not the kingdom of God. That is who you are, follower of Jesus. It's who I am as I follow Jesus. It's the identity that Jesus offers. And before we move on, there's a couple reasons we need to see that embracing this identity is so important in the nitty-gritty practical of life. The first is that it gives us a better way of navigating life in a fallen world, which is to say navigating life in a world that has a lot of good but is not all that it should be because of the fall, because of our, the, the separation of God and creation that comes from humanity not following him as we were made to. It gives us a better way of navigating the world. The world's not all that it is supposed to be, and, so, and it can be tempting to respond to that fact with anxiety, with hand-wringing, by looking at headlines and thinking, like, oh, no, it's falling apart. And many, if we're honest, many of us feel, have felt those feelings, feel those feelings over the course of our lives. But this gives us a better way of navigating the world. It tells us that we can embed ourselves in a place that we don't expect to be the kingdom of God, and we can live in such a way that we, at least in some small way, make it more like the kingdom of God, at least in the small circle around us. I love the way um, theologian, philosopher, Carl Truman, 
uh, put it in a, a, book he, uh, a book of his called uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He, he put it like this. He said, every age had its darkness and its dangers. Pause. There is no golden age. There is no time that we all need to go back to, and that would be the kingdom of God. Creation, this side of the fall, has never been the kingdom of God. Pros and cons at different times and different places, but every age has had its darkness and its dangers. He goes on. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. We're to be elect exiles living like the kingdom of God in a place that's not the kingdom of God. And in some small way, our very presence makes it more like the kingdom of God. Now, this doesn't mean we don't grieve injustice and sin. It doesn't, make, it doesn't mean that we, we don't feel angry about things in the state of the world sometimes. Those are appropriate emotional responses to things that aren't right. But our response is not to expect the world to be something that it's not. It's to live like the kingdom of God in a place that's not the kingdom of God. We're elect exiles. Secondly, we see that uh, this identity that Jesus offers is an identity with a purpose bigger than ourselves. We're offered something, we're offered a way of life that actually satisfies the longing of the human soul for our life to mean something, to be a, a participant in something bigger than ourselves. Because sources of identity that primarily, primarily focus on us, whether it's what we achieve or what we look like or what our family is like or the lifestyle we have, you name it, the list could go on and on. Ultimately, they all fail to give us a truly satisfying purpose that's bigger than ourselves. But the identity that Jesus gives invites us into the big, true story of who God is and what he's doing in a broken world and the way that we're a part of it as we follow him. Um, Ayan Hirsi Ali is uh, a public intellectual. Um, until very recently, she was an outspoken proponent of atheism. She was a part of a movement that people called the New Atheist Movement. It doesn't matter if you know that, but the point is she was a vocal critic of, uh, of, of religion and, and Christianity as one of them. And she recently came to faith in Christ, and she wrote an op-ed about her process, and here's what she said. She said, I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? Build your life on anything that's about you, what you do, what you accomplish, what you look like, who you are, what your family's like, what your lifestyle is like, if you're doing exciting things or not doing exciting things, if you've made that point to your career, if you haven't, if you got the dream house or if you didn't get the dream house, whatever. Build it on that and it will ultimately fail to satisfy our need for life to mean something bigger than us. But Jesus invites us to be a part of God's story, a true story, an eternal story. That's the what, the what of our identity. But that's not the only question we have to ask when it comes to our sense of self. We not only ask who we are, we're also asking, how do I know that's who I am? Or maybe more importantly, I have a secure identity today. How can I know that that will be a secure identity tomorrow? What's the basis of my identity because what you build your identity on will determine how resilient that sense of self actually is in the day-to-day -day trenches 
of life. What the foundation is, how firm the foundation is going to determine how resilient our identity is. And here's what Peter says as he moves on. You're elect exiles in these cities. And then he says, two, verse 2, according to, that's a basis word, that's a, uh, uh, it, it's built upon the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. That is the basis for identity in Christ. He says it's according to, it's built on, it's founded on the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, I mentioned earlier that we were going to flirt a little bit with some of the theological considerations here. Here's the flirtation, right? This is the line that gets disputed a little bit, and ultimately what we're going to bring it back to is whatever view you take, there's something specific that Peter is emphasizing that you can come to, at, come to it at multiple points of view and still see what Peter's saying, and then we agree what the foundation is. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Here, here, here's some of the things we need to consider. It's a line that's been disputed. So here's a couple models. Basically, within his, I mean, this is an oversimplification, but within the within historic Christianity, there's kind of two frameworks with a lot of variations within those two of how people have approached this verse, a few others that are very similar. One model says that what Peter is saying is here when he says that our uh, elect, uh, our identity as elect exiles is according to the foreknowledge of the Father. What they'd say is that means that, um, that God knows in advance, he foreknows, right? That's that word. He foreknows who's going to be open to receiving him, and those, are, and, and those are those whom God chooses. So God, because God knows all things, God knows the future, he knows who's going to be open to him and who is not, and there's this dance between who God knows will be open to him and who God chooses. And so they would say that that's what this is referring to. God knows who's going to be open, so it's according to God's knowledge of, uh, of who will be his, who will respond to, to, to him, and that's the basis for his choosing of us, his election of us. So uh, folks in this camp would uh, point to a verse like Romans 8.29, which says that those he foreknew, those God foreknew, he predestined, he chose. And so they say, well, there you have it. So God, there's this dance between uh, God knowing in advance who's going to be receptive to him and who God chooses. There's another model. The other model is that uh, God's foreknowledge here uh, in uh, 1 Peter 2 is more about the definitive plan of God. It's less about who God knows in advance will be open to him. These folks would say, none of us would choose God left to our own devices. Um, but this is more about God's definitive plan. His, his foreknowledge is his plan of all things and, and who will be his. And so, uh, it, for example, in Acts 2, verse 23, the apostle Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says that Jesus died for our sins according to the, quote, definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. So Peter connects definitive plan and foreknowledge together there. Peter's doing a similar thing here. It's like the, there's... Uh, this, the emphasis is not on God knowing who's going to be open to him. The emphasis on God knows his plan. God is enacting his plan. And so they would say, Romans 8.29, those he foreknew, he predestined. They'd say, well, the object of his foreknowledge isn't people's theoretical openness in the future. The object of what he knows in advance is those it's the people that he knows in advance. He, he knows his people. It's his definitive plan. He's working out his definitive plan. Okay. Some of you are intrigued. Some of you are very bored. That's okay. 
Because here, whatever model that you land on, and we, uh, we as a church community, we think that there's really valid, a really valid case to be made in both, in, in, in both camps and the various variations within those camps. And uh, we choose to find relational unity, even as those people amongst our church are gonna land in different positions on this particular issue. Uh, whatever camp you land in, Peter's emphasis is what? It's God's role. Whatever camp you land in, it's according to something about God, something God has, the, according to the foreknowledge of God. In other words, the basis of your identity as an elect exile, my identity as an elect exile, is something about God. He goes on then to say that this happens, this becomes real in our lives, it's actually enacted in the sanctification of the Spirit. That word in, it can either mean where something is or it can mean uh, instrumentality, which is like how it happened. I think that's what is the case here. How did this happen? How is this, how is this enacted in your life? In the sanctification of the spirit. Another one of these words in a passage like this that you might just breeze on through because you're like, I don't know what that means. And so on to something that I do know what it means. Here's what the Apostle Peter is saying. This word sanctification, sometimes the biblical writers use that word, the word that we translate as sanctification, um, which some translations do some interpretation for us. It doesn't matter. But uh, so sometimes the biblical writers use that word to talk about being set apart to be holy. Separate, separated in identity from sin to the purposes of God. So this is like uh, sanctified as in set apart for a holy calling. So uh, uh, an example here would be like a priestly call, a, a call to be set apart for a unique calling for some holy purpose. Sometimes the biblical writers use that, that word, the word that we translate sanctification, to describe the ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, the apostle Paul says, this is the will of God. You're like, yes, go on, I'm intrigued. Tell me the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What does God will? That we are in a messy, long, but lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus. Sometimes it refers to the act of God, the culmination of history where we're going to be fully glorified out of our struggle with sin to be all that God made us to be. And it's that, that moment where Jesus renews all things and we're, we're glorified and renewed to be all that we are made to be. Okay, here, I think what the apostle Peter is doing is he's talking about a set-apartness for a holy calling. The reason I think that is because he's talking about our identity and he's, and he's talking about the, the, how that identity is enacted in our lives. We're sanctified. We're, we're set apart for this holy calling. How? In the Holy Spirit, in the presence of God. The basis of our identity as an elect exile, the basis of who we are in Jesus, the calling that we have, the assurance of secure identity in him that we have is according to God. And it's enacted, it's realized in our life by the presence of God. Do you see a theme? The basis of our identity, our secure identity in Jesus, does not have to do with me. It does not have to do with you. It has to do with God. It's not about what we do. It's not about who we are. It's about what God does because of who he is. 
This is an identity that does not depend on good circumstances or our good performance to be secure. I can know that I will have a secure sense of self in him tomorrow because regardless of whether or not my circumstances change, regardless of whether or not I fail morally, God will still be God. God will still ensure that I am his. God will still say I'm loved by him. God will still say I have calling in him. We have a secure sense of self, not because of us, but because of him. And we put our, if we put our sense of self, our, our deepest sense of self, of course other things are true of us that are good, that are core to who we are. Of course our personality is a part of who we are and our strengths are part of who we are and our passions and desires are part of who we are, of course. But the truest thing about, about us in him, if we put our sense of self on a foundation that's about what we do or about who we are, Eventually, our circumstances will change, or we'll let ourselves down, or other people down, and we'll fail in some way, and it will crush us. Very silly example from the last two weeks of my life, that on a small scale, this has worked itself out, because this, worked is, this works itself out in both the big stuff and the small stuff. And in, in, in a very, what seems a silly way, as I like, you know, step back and actually reflect on my life, but actually has felt real, is my wife will tell you that any time that I've gotten like an injury or been kind of limited physically in some way, it doesn't just bum me out because it's like, ah, this hurts or like, ah, I can't do this thing. Like, it throws me into a spiritual and existential funk in a way that's like worth investigating. So over the last couple, yeah, over the last couple of weeks, um, I've, I've tweaked my shoulders. Doctor says it's, uh, it's tendonitis in my rotator cuff, whatever. You, go, you don't care. Um, but tweaked my shoulders. Um, and I, like the other day I kind of like blew my back out a little bit and it, I've just been in a funk over it. And I've spent some time sitting with the Lord. Um, what I've felt the Lord say and reveal is, uh, this is hitting you emotionally more deeply than you would expect. Not because you're just bummed out that you have to like rest from being active for a while and that you have to be careful picking up your kids and stuff like that. But because you think of yourself as an active person you think of yourself as someone that's physically capable, and when you don't feel that way, it pokes at your identity. You don't feel like yourself, and so it hits you emotionally more than you would expect it to. Now, is there anything wrong with being active and liking being active and making that a big part of my life? No, that's a great thing. But is it worth building a true sense of self on? Well, no, not only because it's fragile, but because in, in a very literal sense, there's coming a day where I won't have, be able to do any of that stuff, right? And what I'm experiencing now is the little foretaste, the beginnings of more, and I'm, a, I'm being confronted with that reality. Point is this. We build ourselves, our primary sense of self, on us, something about us, something we're able to do, something that we do, and eventually it's gonna, we'll let ourselves down or the world will let us down and it will crush us. Peter closes, will close, with not just answering these questions of who we are and how we know it, how we'll know it tomorrow, but by showing us what that should produce in our lives, the purpose of our, the identity that Jesus gives. And we'll close with this, because Peter, as he's, as he's finishing up his little kind of introductory remarks and his introduction addressing his audience, tells us that you're tells his audience and then by extension us 
your elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of spirit of the Spirit, end of verse 2, for, purpose word, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What this is all about, what this should produce, what the, the end goal of all of this, the for of it, is obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. Now, when we think about uh, obedience in a place like the South Bay, it, it makes us cringe a little bit, some of us, if we're honest. Like the whole idea of the end goal of all this is that you would obey Jesus. The idea of obedience makes us cringe a bit, largely because we think of freedom as specifically not having to obey. Right? Like for the free life is, I don't, it's not, it's not about like disobedient. It's not about disobeying. It's just like removing obedience off the table as a category to even think about, right? So it makes us cringe to think about the end goal of this being obedience to Jesus. But what we need to see in light of what the Apostle Peter has said about our identity and how obedience fits as an extension of our identity or the result of our identity is that obedience as a follower of Jesus is not about white-knuckling our way through some sort of lame or restrictive way of life just because someone told us that we should. It's about following in the way of God who made us and loved us so we become who we were always made to be. And crucially, this is not about giving us a better or more thorough checklist. Although scripture does give us a beautiful vision that is clear about the way of life of a follower of Jesus. But it's about exhorting us to live from a truer and better identity, an identity given by Jesus. So when the Apostle Peter is talking about obedience to Jesus, he's not talking about imposing a list of rules on ourselves. He's talking about living from a truer sense of identity in Christ. The identity that Jesus gives is an identity that shapes us into who God always made us to be. And obedience to Jesus is the way we work that identity out in the way that we actually live as we live from the inside out, knowing who we are in him. And that's what Peter's going to walk us through in this whole letter as we unpack it over the next couple of months. What's true of us, and what does that mean for the way that we live our lives? And finally, and the worship team can come up now, Peter says that our identity as elect exiles is not just for obedience to Jesus. And that part, you know, take the obedience piece out of it and figuring out what exactly he means by that. That's intuitive, because identity directs our energy. It comes out in a way of life. But what is Peter doing here? Why does he say obedience, I'm sorry, it's for obedience and for sprinkling with his blood, a reference to Jesus' work on the cross to die in our place, covering forever all of our sin, past, present, and future. Why is that, why is our identity as elect exiles for forgiveness of our sin on Jesus's cross. It's interesting that he chooses to, to frame it that way because he could very logically and theologically accurately have said that the cross, the means by which we're forgiven, is a means to our identity. He could have said that you were made elect exiles by the finished work of Jesus on his cross. That would have been a perfectly, uh, perfectly valid, perfectly accurate thing for Peter to say, but that's not what Peter says. What Peter says is you are elect exiles for the purpose of being covered by Jesus' cross and forgiveness of sin. So why does Peter say that? I've thought about this a lot. 
spent a, wrestling. This is the main thing, actually, I've been wrestling over as I've been preparing this sermon because it seems counterintuitive. Studied, I've thought, meditated on this passage, and uh, a light bulb clicked as I was meditating on this, asking God, God, why does it say this? Why is it like this? And here's what I think. I think framing being cleansed and forgiven in Jesus' cross as the result of our identity rather than the means of our identity emphasizes the heart of God in Jesus' death on our behalf. What Peter is emphasizing is not the cross as a means to something. He's emphasizing Jesus' cross as a revelation of who God is and specifically as a revelation of God's heart towards you and me. And this is so important because I think many of us deep down, for a whole list of reasons that are probably unique to every one of us, but many of us deep down think of God's love for us as something that he had to be convinced into or something that something needed to be done in order for him to love us first. But this is what Peter is saying by emphasizing the cross as a result of our identity. What Peter is showing us is that God doesn't love us because Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us because God already loved us. The cross is the result of who God declares us to be. The cross, God's action on the cross, is because he already loved us. He already counted us as his. He already he already declared truth over us as his. He already had a disposition towards us as his beloved. The cross of Jesus shows us that God loves us. This is how the Apostle Paul puts us in Romans 5.8. That God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't need to be convinced. He didn't need something to happen before he would love us. He did something because he loved us. And this is what the cross reveals. Yes, it accomplishes something. It accomplishes the most beautiful, cosmic, personally important thing in all of history that we're reconciled to the God of the universe. But it also shows us that that God, the God who created 100 billion galaxies and knows what's going on in the depths of the Pacific Ocean right now, that God loves us personally. Already, while we're still wrapped up in our sins, still figuring it out, still struggling through, he loves us. And that's what we declare ourselves as we take the Lord's Supper. We're going to worship, and we're each in our own time going to, going to uh, partake of the elements, the, the cup that symbolizes Jesus' blood that was shed, the bread that symbolizes his body that was broken. And we do so as a reminder of who we are because it's a reminder of who God is and what he's done for us. And in that, we see his love for us, which is who we are to begin with. So we, as we take, as we worship, we remind ourselves of a God who loves us and a God who's chosen us and a, guy, a God who's called us to be his people in our particular place and time. We remind ourselves of, of the security of that identity that will be true tomorrow the same way that it's true today, regardless of what happens or regardless of what I do tomorrow. And we remind ourselves that it gives us a new way to live. There's something for us. There's something God has for us. So let me pray. Amanda and the team are going to lead us.
and then we'll be done for this morning. So uh, you guys pray with me. God, we love you. And we're so grateful for your grace. Grateful for everything that we have in you, what is true of us in you. We pray that we would believe it. We would know it. We would actually internalize it deep down in our bones. And I pray right now for anyone that is struggling to believe um, functionally, not just intellectually, but struggling to functionally believe that they're loved and chosen of God, that they have calling and purpose in their life. I pray for anyone in that camp, situation, experience, that you would speak truth over them. I pray for freedom. I pray for an experienced reality of your love. I pray that we'd be a people who reinforce our true identity in Jesus to each other. Would we help each other remember who we are? And uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you take the elements, can I invite you to stand? You can. We're going to go ahead and move into worship. You can take the element whenever you're ready. Oh, it's 
one last time, Lord, would you give us faith to see this, this truth that you have called us, you have chosen us, you see us, you do not forsake us. You are with us in every valley, in every mountaintop. May we trust that today, God. May we truly feel that you see us, the God of the universe. You see us and you know us. Sing it again. I am chosen, not forsaken. chosen us, your sons and your daughters. May we feel it, may we know it, may we walk out in that identity, in that confidence that we put in you and you alone. So we love you, we worship you, Jesus. You are worthy of it all. We bless your name, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, happy new year, you guys. Bless you. Grab some more donuts. I'm very sick, if you couldn't tell. My voice is gone, so pray for me as you grab donuts. Love you guys. See you next week. <laughs>